So the first part of our night is to uh, each of us to kind of introduce ourselves, tell us our kind of our, our story. And um, so I'd like to just say a little bit about me and how I got here today. I'm the oldest of six kids. I was born in St. Paul, baptized at St. Mark's right by uh, St. Thomas. Moved to Chicago for a few years. My, my dad's a surgeon, so he did residency there. And then we moved to Duluth. So I grew up in Duluth. I called Duluth home. Uh, Holy Rosary School, Cathedral Parish, uh, and then a proud cake eater from Duluth East. <laughs> Played uh, uh, hockey and soccer there. Um, when I was young, maybe like eight or eight to ten years old, like a lot of boys, yeah, wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be a priest and a hockey player, so play hockey. <laughs> and then on Sunday, I'd offer mass for my teammates. But through high school, and then after high school, I went down to Texas to play junior hockey. Junior hockey, if you're not familiar with it, is a level between high school and college that you get better, stronger, the hopes of getting a scholarship someplace. And, uh, but no, during that time, no desire to be a priest at all. Um, after junior hockey, went to St. Thomas with the desire to play hockey there, study accounting, and find a good Catholic gal to marry. And uh, it was halfway through my time there, particularly the end of my, my sophomore year, that I started to take my faith more seriously. I made a, a good confession. Uh, it was the weekly Catholic Tommies group, and again, I was mainly there to, to find a good Catholic gal. Um, I made a good confession that night that was what the priest was talking about, confession. Uh, and then that summer, I got a job driving a big ice truck, delivering ice to liquor stores, grocery stores, gas stations, and the like. Just a lot of time to think to myself. Um, got sick of listening to the radio, same songs, in sync, Britney Spears, over and over. <laughs> Either turned it off or started listening to Catholic radio. And uh, it was during that time that I, I, I really came to love the Catholic faith. I always grew up knowing that it was the faith that Christ gave us. Uh, so much so you can, um, there's a time when I was in Texas, I was living with one of my housing families, and we were at a, they were back this And so we were at Texas Stadium for a big um, revival meeting with Billy Graham. You know, thousands and thousands of people with altar calls, praise and worship music, all like likes. And one of the intermissions, we were walking around the concourse, and I was with my housing family, um, the family I was living with, and every so often they'd run into some of their friends and they'd chat and say hello, and they'd say, oh yeah, this is, this is Nick Nelson, he's playing hockey um, for the Wichita Falls wrestlers and he's living with us, oh, and he's Catholic. <laughs> and I would get the, the, the question that most Catholics, I don't know about Orthodox, hate to get asked, are you saved? <laughs> are you saved? Because we know like, okay, it's not just simple and yes or no, but I also knew in that moment, again, with the great faith that God has given me, that I was in a better place than they were, <laughs> like being Catholic. Um, now I know how to answer that question. And just quickly, you can say, like, um, I have been redeemed, I hope to be saved, or I have been saved, I am being saved, and I hope to be saved. You know, the idea that it's a process. Um, so, but anyways, so that summer driving an ice truck between my sophomore and junior year, time to think and, you know, what's my purpose in life? What, what am I here for? What's going to happen when I die? Why did God make me? And for the first time, or the second time actually came to me that, you know, Nick, you've striven for excellence in academics and hockey. Why not 
be a great man? Why not be a saint? Why not be an excellent man? And uh, I said, you know what? Yeah, I, I, I want that. I want to start making the right choices and the right sacrifices, and I believe that I could become a saint. And soon with that comes the idea of if you want to be a saint, want to be virtuous, want to be great, you have to be open to God's will. And you say, okay, and it's a young man, maybe he wants me to be a priest. But again, I thought I just dismissed it, get to the fall again, um, study hockey, beautiful cat girls, and I would forget about being a priest. But it kind of stuck with me that that was possible, that that was what God wanted me to be. And I couldn't uh, dismiss that anymore without taking the next step. And so came home for Thanksgiving, met with uh, Father Rich, who was the vocation director at that time, uh, Bishop Schnur. Uh, got a week, uh, a week later, I got a call from Bishop Schnur saying, okay, Nick, we can put you in now in January, otherwise wait till the fall. And um, I said, well, the quicker I get in, the quicker I realize it's not for me and I get out. And, uh, <laughs> once I got in, I just saw more and more confirmation that's where the Lord wanted me to be. And uh, so six and a half years later, ordained a priest, and ten years now a priest. Uh, I, I just can't uh, imagine doing anything uh, differently with my life. I truly believe that this is what the Lord made me to do. And so I'm so glad to be here tonight and uh, to share um, um, our faith and uh, discussion with uh, Father Dustin Lyon here. Okay, can you hear me? So, first off, I have a voice disorder called uh, spasmatic dysphonia, so if you have a hard time hearing me, let me know, I'll repeat what I said. It's the same thing that Robert Kennedy Jr., who's running for president, has, so if you've heard him speak, it's the same disorder. Um, so, my story, um, so I'm a Ninth generation American of English and Irish heritage. So I met the Greek church, but I have no Greek blood in me whatsoever. <laughs> but I grew, up, I grew up in southern Iowa, and I grew up United Methodist. I didn't grow up Orthodox. And one of the things I wanted to do when I, when I got out of college is I wanted to study archaeology, and I wanted to get out of Iowa, just to experience it. <laughs> um, and so I came up to the University of Minnesota. Um, in Minneapolis, because they had a really good archaeology program, and it was a big city. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. And this next part will either date me as young or old, depending on where you are in life. But the second week of school was when 9-11 happened, um, in my freshman year at the university. And so, and I remember that day very vividly, much like those who experienced it. It's one of those moments that you just remember. It's, it's like stuck in your mind. And so, Eventually, after that day had passed, I convinced my entire floor to go to church with me on Sunday because you know, the world had changed very dramatically in the span of a few hours. Even the Hindu guy said, I'll come with you. <laughs> but the question was, where were we going to go to church? Because you know, I was Methodist. Most, a lot of them were Lutheran. We had a Catholic. We had a Hindu. We had an Anglican. We had a Baptist from Japan. So it was very mixed. And so they said, well... Dustin, you're, you're organizing it. We'll go wherever you want. So I said, well, I'm Methodist. Let's go to the Methodist church. So I always joke, I found the one Methodist church in Lutheran country. And, <laughs> and what happened is when we walked into the doors of that Methodist church, it was very different than the church I'd grown up in, in like small town Iowa, right? The difference between like big city sort of religion versus like small town country religion. And I was always aware that there were differences between denominations, but this was the first time I experienced difference within a denomination. And of course, because I was studying archaeology, I'm very historically minded. 
And so I began to wonder if Christ started a church and the apostles spread that faith, what happened to it? Where is it today? How can there be so many differences even within a denomination if, if Christ started an actual church? And so I kind of gave up on the church. I thought it was a nice concept. It just doesn't, it didn't last to the modern day. That's it. And so I did what a lot of college kids did. I I'd stayed up late Saturday nights and then slept in on Sunday mornings. And so I ended up spending two summers in Greece on excavations. And um, of course there, Greece is, the population is 98% Orthodox and there are Byzantine churches everywhere. And so when I came back to um, to the, my senior year now at the University of Minnesota, I thought, I'm going to learn about this Orthodox thing. I had no intention of converting. I just wanted to learn about it as like an academic to con consider myself educated. And so I started going to the college group. And from there, they started taking me to church. Um, they started taking me actually to the Russian church. And, um, and the more I learned about Orthodoxy, I thought, this sounds a lot like the early church I've been learning about at the secular university. And so I eventually um, was convicted that this is the church that Christ started. And so after, as an American who had traveled in Greece, I finally converted Orthodoxy in the Russian church. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, the reason I eventually became a priest, so I went on, I got married. That's a difference between us. I did find that nice Orthodox girl. And I married. <laughs> and, so I went on and was working on my master's degree in archaeology. And my, my dad at that point had become Baptist. And so that question of, are you saved? You know, my dad's like, what are you doing? Um, do you guys believe in Christ? Are you saved? Like, he had these questions. So we had these long conversations on the phone. And what he ended up doing is reading a large collection called the Philokalia, The Love of Beauty, which is Orthodox monastic literature. It's like five or six volumes, all about the, the ancient Jesus prayer. Which is, a, which is a orthodox practice going all the way back to the early centuries. And so, and of course, my parents still live in Iowa to this day, and there's no orthodox church anywhere near where they live. So one, one, one night, it was a Sunday night, my dad calls, and he was, he was the guy, he would go after supper, we would have family dinner, he'd go into his bedroom and read the Bible for like two or three hours. And that was, that's what he did. And so one Sunday he calls and he says, I can't do it anymore. I said, Dad, what did you do? And he said, well, um, I haven't been in church in like two months. And I couldn't believe it. My dad was like the guy that was always at church. And I said, Dad, what's going on? He goes, well, I've read the entire Philokalia. I was like, okay. <laughs> That's quite an undertaking. And he goes, I've read the entire Philokalia and I don't think the Baptist is the church anymore. He goes, I want to be Orthodox. And then he said something that's, that stayed with me the rest of my life. And he said, if the Orthodox Church is the true church, has God abandoned me here at Mount Pleasant, Iowa? And so it was after that that I said, um, I mean, worldwide, we're the second largest denomination after the Catholic Church, some 300 million Orthodox Christians around the world. But in America, we're very small. Um, you know, we used to be, we were the greatest evangelists in the world. We converted the entire Roman Empire, we converted all the Slavs, and then, but now, we've kind of stopped. And so I thought, I've got to do something about this, and I think that's part of the conviction that led me to seminary then. Um, I went to seminary in New York City at St. Vladimir's, 
And so it became my, my, my wife had to sign on, on to that, and I finally convinced her. And um, so I went to seminary, became a priest, and now I'm back in the Midwest, um, you know, spreading, spreading the gospel. So that's, that's me. One of the things we want to do, uh, at least today, which is a little different because I think for previous years is there's a lot of a similarity um, between us. And so we want to talk kind of historically, our understandings of history and uh, where we kind of were together and, and where that kind of um, went awry, why we aren't in a sense in communion with each other. And so I'm going to take uh, the next 10 minutes or so to kind of lay out kind of a, a history of, as we Catholics kind of see it, and then um, I'm looking forward to hear what uh, Father has to share about kind of the, uh, their understanding of, of history, and then after that we'll kind of have a discussion, um, both of us kind of back and forth, on some of the major points or topics that might be kind of the reason for um, this unity between us. Um, I'd like, I like to start maybe from the beginning, just so we all kind of have a a good understanding is we have um, we have uh, Jesus, okay? Jesus, and he gathers twelve apostles, and he he's with them for basically three years, and many other disciples around him, and he's doing miracles, he's he's teaching, um, giving them the faith. Um, they're 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 coming to know God uh, through him. He is God incarnate. Um, we know he. Holy Week, he, he suffers and dies, and he rises from the dead, and he's with his apostles and disciples for, for 40 days. And then, um, before he ascends, he gives the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you until the end of time. And so those apostles... <coughs> They, they're supposed to wait a few days for the Holy Spirit to come. They're filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and they go, they go out from Israel, out from Jerusalem to the ends of the world to bring that faith that Jesus gave them, that um, he revealed to them. And the human family was somewhat established around the world with different cultures, different languages. <laughs> And so you have these apostles and disciples going to different places and encountering different people. That kernel of faith that they got from Jesus takes root in different cultures, different languages, and the such. Um, I don't know exactly where all, for example, the apostles you know, went, but we have some idea and some tradition about where the apostles went, each of them. Um, James the Greater went to Spain. Okay, There's evidence that Paul went there too before coming back to Rome. Um, Paul went to many places. You hear about all his letters. Um, Thomas and Bartholomew went to India. Uh, Simon the Zealot and James the Lesser in Egypt. Matthias to Armenia. Again, encountering different cultures with the same faith. And that faith, that same faith takes root in different cultures. And so... Today, we have, in particular, even in the Catholic Church, many different rites um, that are in communion with us. But also, we have the Orthodox churches that are of different cultures as well. Um, 
There were, at times, discussions and even disagreements over what that faith was. And the church would get together to discuss that and say, okay, what is the truth? What did Christ actually reveal to us? One of the, the first one is attested to us in Scripture, right? In the Council of Jerusalem. A very practical matter. These Jews, what do they have to do? Or sorry, the Gentiles, what do they have to do to become Christian? To be true followers of Christ? Do they have to become Jews first? And this wasn't a little question, especially for the men, right? Because to become Jew, you need to be circumcised, okay? That was a big deal. And so do we have to take grown men and have them circumcised? And so they, they come, the leaders, the apostles come to Jerusalem, and they decide, like, no, you do not have to find to follow all those Jewish laws before you become Christian. You don't have to become Jewish before you become a follower of Christ. So that's a good example of that, that first kind of council gathering together. But there would be other disagreements. Um, the first three centuries, we need to remember that Christianity was illegal. Um, it was with Constantine, when he had that battle in Rome, and he became emperor. Milvian Bridge, you might have remember the story. Uh, it's kind of unclear exactly what it was, but he had a dream. He saw some image, by this sign you will conquer. Um, it was the Cairo, it was the cross. Um, he went and defeated Maxentius, I think, the guy's name. I think so. And he became emperor. He attributed his victory to what he found out to be the, the Christian God. Uh, the next year is the Edict of Milan, 313. Christianity becomes legal. They, they're able to start now building churches. <laughs> Before it was houses that they, they offered their liturgies in. They, they developed these churches across the empire. Uh, beautiful, magnificent things. Constantine giving money for these things um, to be built. It was then, with not being persecuted, not Christians running for their life, that you start to see some theology done, some discussing of what this faith is. Um, what we receive from Jesus, looking at it from different angles, coming up with a better understanding of it, discussions, but also then disagreements. And the first main one concerns Jesus and his nature. Is Jesus fully God? Is he a lesser God? Is he, is he not God? You might have heard a guy named um, Arius, okay? The Arian heresy. And so they gathered together in the first council, okay, in Nicaea in 325 to discuss that matter. Uh, we came up with, at that point, the Nicene Creed. <laughs> it's not quite what we say at Mass um, on Sunday. That's the Nicene Constantinople. Why? Because they thought they snuffed out Arianism, but no, there's people who held to that afterwards. And so they had to have another council, Constantinople. Um, again, discussing, determining what the true faith is, who Jesus truly is. Constantinople was in 381. After that, you had Ephesus in 431. That was um, Nestorianism they, they condemned. And Nestorianism was denying the unity of the divine and the human in Christ. Okay, And what's interesting, what I want to point out here is, with the Catholic Church, there's some groups that still actually, even though the church in these councils declare something, there's still some groups of people that don't agree with the church, and they are separated, even to this day. So 
the Church of the East, the Assyrians, um, they're still like, they're separated because they believe something different about Jesus. Council of Chalcedon in 451 um, condemned monophysitism. That, and that's the idea that Jesus isn't two distinct natures, human and divine, but actually a human is absorbed into the, the divine. And you still have some what we would call monophysites in the world today, Egyptian, Coptic, Ethiopians, and Syrians. Um, so you have this church, and it declares the truth, but you still have some people that don't agree with it, and they, they continue to do their own thing. Quickly, you know, a few more um, councils. Again, the church getting together, the leaders, Constantinople II, Constantinople III, um, and Nicaea II. Um, I, would, I would stop with those um, councils, because those are the ones that my understand that the Orthodox accept as the first seven, okay, of these, these councils. Um, but you have the reality, the difference then in this world with different cultures. You, there's politics that come up. It gets complicated. Um, you have different traditions, um, leavened versus unleavened bread for the mass. Um, the, what we believe and it's necessary about the Holy Spirit and how we talk about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, called the filioque. Filio meaning son, que meaning and, so and the Son in the Creed. We're going to talk more about that later. Um, celibacy, you know, we mentioned that already, the difference and the practices, the disciplines in each of uh, the Orthodox versus uh, the Western. Um, and uh, maybe just to... How much time are we going on here? So, about that time. Yeah, so, um, and then there's, we'll get into there is the actual coming to a head in 1054 with this kind of mutual excommunicating of the leaders of both the Orthodox and the Catholic churches, the Pope and the Patriarch of Constantinople. Um, and again, it's, it's complicated. There's some intertwining, obviously, of not just cultures, but also politics, etc. Um, and, uh, I guess maybe I would just say, you know, 1054 is a big date. Um, there's also the date after that in 1204, the, the sacking of Constantinople, so the Fourth Crusade. Uh, the, the, the West, the, the Catholics coming to Jerusalem, to, and they get kind of sidetracked to go to Constantinople and actually sack Constantinople. Like, that wasn't good. If you want to bring back together, you know, that's not a good way to, to do it. Um, yeah. And so maybe uh, I'll, I'll stop there at that point, and um, uh, Father, Father Dustin can kind of uh, speak about the history um, from their understanding at this point. Because this is so complex, I wrote my comments down for this section. <laughs> now that Father Nick has set the groundwork for basic early church history, I'm going to set the path specifically for the Great Schism of 1054. But, but first, before I go too far, I want to say a word about how I view this dialogue. I don't by any means see it as a debate. I'm right and you're wrong, sort of thing. I don't think those, those sorts of conversations are useful, nor are they very fruitful in building bridges between our churches. Instead, I see these conversations as informative. In other words, I'm simply saying this is how we understand ourselves as Orthodox Christians. Maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Either way is okay. Now that's out of the way. <laughs> the history of how the Church of Rome fell out of communion 
with the ancient churches of Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem, as well as the rest of the Orthodox Church, is long and complex. So a very brief treatment will suffice for tonight. Suffice to say, it wasn't completely theological. There were also many cultural and political reasons. Nonetheless, the title of tonight's program is Why We Are Not One. And it seems that the theological issues are the ones that have had the lasting impact. So I'm going to focus on those. First, some background about the Filioque Clause that Father Nick mentioned already. The governing structure of the early church was conciliar. That is, when administrative decisions needed to be made or when the faith needed to be articulated against heresies, all the bishops of the world came together to form a council. Those councils that Father Nick talked about, these so-called ecumenical councils. They were usually called by a Roman emperor who, for the most part of history, lived in Constantinople. The, the emperor was in Constantinople far, far, far longer than he ever was in Italian Rome. This conciliar model was set as the church's governing structure from the very beginning. In fact, the very first council, which was recorded in the book of Acts, was when St. Paul went to Jerusalem to speak to the other apostles about the Gentile mission. At any rate, it was during the first two ecumenical councils that the so-called Nicene, or Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, was written. This creed was intended to serve as a common witness to the Christian faith, a universal articulation of what all Christians everywhere and at all times believed. One clause of that creed, in its original form, states that Christians believe in the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father, period. Eventually, between the 6th and 9th centuries, the Western Church added to the creed such that it eventually read this way, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the creator of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's the Filioque. The addition of and the Son um, becomes the problem. So, what's the problem? The first problem is what I call administrative. Remember, bishops from all around the world had gathered to express the Christian faith, so the ecumenical councils are decisions that are considered binding on all Christians and all churches. With that in mind, it was at the third ecumenical council in Ephesus that the seventh canon was universally agreed upon. That canon states, any bishop who sets forth a faith other than that of Nicaea shall be alien from the church. If a layman do so, let him be cast out. For an Orthodox Christian, the addition of the Filioque is exactly that, the Church of Rome setting forth a faith that is other than that of Nicaea. Everyone had already agreed. If the creed is altered, then they should be alien from the Church of Christ. So the Church of Rome must no longer be a part of the universal Christian faith, or at least that's what it seems like to Orthodox Christians. At this point, I should mention the authority of the Pope. Some Western Christians have argued that the authority of the Pope is such that he does have the authority to make changes to the creed. The history of the papacy is long and complex, but as mentioned, the early church functioned in a conciliar fashion. So when the Roman Empire fell in the West, 
and left the power vacuum that the pulp eventually filled. Note, the Roman Empire didn't fall in the East until the 15th century, which is why most people around the world called the Orthodox Patriarch of Constantinople the Roman Patriarch, and Christians in Turkey to this day are called Romans. But getting back on track, as the Pope gained secular power, ideas about the papacy also began to change. For example, that the Pope has universal jurisdiction, that the unity of the church is expressed through the papacy, and this, this one we may need to talk about, that St. Peter was the first bishop of Rome. On a historical side note, he was not. St. Peter was the bishop of Antioch, the Orthodox Patriarchate, and died in Rome. Anyway, as Orthodox Christians, we understand that the unity of the church is her faith. We are held together by our common belief, which was expressed through the Nicene Creed and the Ecumenical Councils. This means that our bond is not because of an institution, such as the papacy, rather it's our common faith that, produ that produces the church. So it's not what does Rome think, but rather what do the fathers say. So for an Orthodox Christian, though the Pope may be the Bishop of Rome, he doesn't represent the entire church nor does he have the authority to alter the creed. In fact, in the eyes of Orthodox Christians, the Pope's authority is a creative innovation, a break with the tradition of the Apostles. So for us, the original ecumenical declaration holds that no bishop changed the faith set forth in Nicaea. If this sounds like a technicality to you, imagine if someone changed our national anthem. One Orthodox priest gave this as an example. Instead of singing, whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight, someone saying instead, whose dear maple leaf through the perilous fight, would you not protest? Would you not point out to the singer that the essence of the song has changed? My guess is that you would. And is not the creed, the fundamental articulation of the Christian faith, not more important? Is it not essential that we hold on to what the saints have given us? As Orthodox Christians, we think it is. Okay, setting that aside, let's look at the theology of the Filioque. Part of what the Nicene Creed did was articulate the proper understanding of the Holy Trinity, which is, without a doubt, a difficult topic. But allow me to try to explain. To do so, I'll turn to Father Anthony Conneris, a longtime priest here in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, in fact. He wrote, Orthodox Christians believe the Filioque to be theologically untrue. The Orthodox Church logically thinks that God knows best about himself. It was Jesus himself who said, but when the counselor comes, or the advocate, or the helper, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. That's John 15, 26. Orthodoxy has always taught what the Bible teaches. Christ sends the Spirit, but the Spirit proceeds from the Father. In short, the proceeding is about who the Holy Spirit is, a part of the Holy Trinity, while the sending is about what the Holy Spirit does, bringing salvation to the world. If the two are confused, as they seem to be in the Filioque, then Orthodox Christians wonders if God's saving power is really at work in the world. 
to us, the filioque seems, makes it seem as if it's not. Additionally, according to the church fathers, the Father is the source or origin of the Holy Trinity. The Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Thus, the Father preserves the unity of the Godhead. If, however, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Father is no longer the unique origin, and the unity of the Trinity is fractured. To us, it sounds as if the Father has been demoted. For these reasons, Orthodox Christians tend to view the Filioque suspiciously. All of these things come together in the year 1054. The Turks were becoming a political problem for the emperor in the Constantinople, and the Normans were becoming a problem for the pope in Italy. The emperor and the pope decided that they could come to each other's aid. The emperor would agree to the concessions of papal authority, and in return, the pope would send troops to the east. However, when the pope's delegation was not received by the patriarch of Constantinople, the delegation excommunicated the patriarch, who in return excommunicated the delegation. Relations between the East and West did not improve when soldiers from the Fourth Crusade in 1204 <coughs> decided to loot and pillage Constantinople instead of continuing on to liberate Christians in the Middle East. They murdered unarmed civilians, raped women, including, including nuns, despoiled churches, and desecrated Orthodox Christian altars. This has seen for many historians the final straw that broke the camel's back. There is, however, some good news. In 1965, both Pope Paul VI and Ecumenical Patriarch Athenagoras withdrew the excommunications of 1054. And continuing dialogues between the Orthodox and Catholic churches have declared that there may be ways of understanding the filioque that could be acceptable to Orthodox Christians. Nonetheless, our churches are still technically in schism, and we do not share communion with one another. Until then, though, Orthodox Christians at every service continue to keep this prayer on their lips. That is, for the peace of the whole world, for the stability of the holy churches of God, and for the unity of all. Let us pray to the Lord. Thank you. So maybe, Father, if we, um, first we can talk a little bit about the filioque, um, more in depth. And um, particular, one thing you, you brought up was um, the changing of the creeds, adding to the creeds and stuff. Um, what I was kind of learning and doing some research here is, as you said, like, they can't, they couldn't change what was said at Nicaea, Right. But it was already clear that at Constantinople they added to the, the creed, right? Because they added those other things. So, um, and you guys accept that? Well, the declaration yeah. that, that it couldn't be changed wasn't until the Third Council, though, in Ephesus. Yeah, but they acknowledged that the Creed of Nicaea couldn't change when um, there was a council between that that they didn't acknowledge, and it would already was changed. So. I, I think there's there's acceptance that the creed was changed from Nicaea or added to for Constantinople because that's what we say now the Nicene Constantinople uh, creed. Um, 
I also maybe, I think, to, to talk about what uh, your understanding is of the Council of Florence, okay? <laughs> so one of the councils that really tried to bring the church back together was in Florence in 1438, 1438. And um, from the looks of it, it was an ecumenical council. For beginning, even people from the, the East were saying, this is what we're expecting to do. We believe it's going to be an ecumenical council. What comes out of this is going to be binding, infallible, etc. Um, and what happens out of this, this council is this um, uh, Latenter um, Chaley. Let the heavens rejoice. And I'll just read like some of the, the different things about this, what it said. Um, so all the bishops... Um, even from the East, emperor from the East, except for one, um, this uh, Marcus, Mark? Mark of Ephesus. Mark of, yeah, didn't sign it. But this is what the quote says. It says, Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice, for the wall that divided the Western and the Eastern church has been removed. Peace and harmony have returned. Since the cornerstone, Christ who made both one, has joined both sides with a very strong bond of love and peace uniting and holding them together in a covenant of lasting unity. After a long haze of grief and dark and unlovely gloom of long-enduring strife, the radiance of hoped-for union has illuminated all. So there seems to be this reunification of the East and West in this council. And part of this document um, talks about the filioque. And this is what it says. We declare that when holy doctors and fathers say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, this bears the sense that thereby also the Son should be signified, according to the Greeks, indeed as cause, and according to the Latins, as principle of substance, of subsistence of the Holy Spirit, just like the Father. So there's an agreement in the filioque, or, or the, the word, or the understanding of it, even though the East wouldn't add that to their creed of what we believe about the Holy Spirit to be the same. And again, these bishops from the East agreed to this and the unification. They went home, um, and for even a while after, a number of them were saying, yes, we believe this, we want to be unified. But um, the understanding that I have is um, people back there weren't up for it, political issues, uh, and then all the East said, okay, we don't believe that, what we agreed to. But we would argue that there was a binding ecumenical council that took place at Florence that reunified us, that, that did bring us um, in union. Father? Yeah. And so there were, there were actually two councils that tried to unify the East and the West. One was in Lyon, and then this one in Florence. And Florence was what, 1550, 40? Oh, Florence was 1438. 1438. Constantinople falls in 1453. So this is just a few years before the fall of Constantinople. And so for those who know that history, what had happened is the, the Roman Empire had essentially, sometimes historians call it the Byzantine Empire. But the Byzantines themselves never called themselves Byzantine. They always called themselves Roman. It's later historians who look back and call it the Byzantine Empire. But anyway, it basically shrunk down to basically the, the surrounding region of Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul. And the patriarch at that time, his name was John, Patriarch John, who is the, not the patriarch, the, the emperor, his name is John Paleogus. He's the last, last emperor of the Roman Empire. And he, of course, is feeling the pressure as the, as the oncoming Ottoman Turks are knocking on the doors. 
And so he's under political pressure, if you will, to get aid from the West. This is, how, this is typically how Orthodox Christians see the Crusades, that they're not seen as these violent, awful sorts of things. They're, they're seen as attempts by the Western Church to help liberate the Eastern Christians from Islamic empires. And so in an attempt to try to get Western military aid, he takes a delegation of Orthodox bishops to end up in Florence to, to try to see if there's a way to get this aid. And what happens is he goes with the, the ecumenical patriarch, whose name was Joseph at that time, and bishops from, he doesn't go with patriarchs from the other churches, but representatives of the other churches, including at, by this point the Russian church, Antioch, Alexandria, and Jerusalem. And they go there. Um, and they eventually, out of pressure, the bishops all sign this, this reunion uh, document that, that Father Nick is talking about. Except for one bishop, uh, Mark of Ephesus, who is now considered a saint in our church because he didn't sign. That's, that's the reason he's a um, But what happens is after, after they, they sign this document, um, the, the representative goes back to Kiev, the, the Russian one goes back to Kiev, and the, the prince, after hearing about what happens under the penalty of death, tells him, you need to renounce this union. He eventually doesn't renounce it and goes back to Rome and becomes a cardinal, a Roman cardinal then. Um, the delegations from the churches of Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria go back to their representative um, patriarchs who were not there and said, hey, guess what? We're back in union with the West. And they were, all three of those patriarchs said, nope, you're out of here. And they got rid of them. Um, the, the ecumenical patriarch who had gone to Florence they also didn't sign. He's the other one who didn't sign. And the reason he didn't sign is because he had died. <laughs> there, there, there's his presence there. Um, so he didn't, he, didn't die because he, he didn't sign because he had died. But when the other bishops come back to Constantinople, the people of the city revolt against him. It is true that, but it is true that the last emperor of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, did die technically a Roman Catholic rather than an Eastern Orthodox Christian. And they were held, holding Latin Mass inside Hagia Sophia when the city fell instead of the Orthodox um, liturgies because of this reunion. But for us, for a council to be ecumenical, um, you know, because you mentioned that the West considers it an ecumenical council, for us, for that council to be ecumenical, you need another council to proclaim the previous one ecumenical. And since we haven't had a, a council since the 8th century, we've had no council, an ecumenical council, to declare this one yes or no. I mean, obviously, I don't think it would happen um, at this point, but that would be our perspective on Florence. Okay. We want to have time for questions, but uh, briefly, I think, to talk a little bit about the other thing is uh, the Pope's the Pope's position, a papal supremacy. And what, I, what it will come down is, you know, Father said, we've, we've uh, left communion with the true church. We would say, you guys have, you know, left <laughs> communion with the church. And it, it comes down to the Holy Father. And we see in um, Matthew's gospel that Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And... It's clear from the text and everything, by this rock, it's Peter. It is, it is him. It is, it, that is the rock. That is the unifi unifying factor of, of God's church. Um, we see um, 
Jesus relating to Peter in a specific way. He says to him, you know, at the Last Supper, um, when you have turned back, you, you know, strengthen the brothers. <laughs> that, that'll be your job. It was after his resurrection that he takes uh, Peter and he says, do you love me three times? You know, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Jesus, or Peter has this primary, very important role in Christ while he's here on earth. And then afterwards in the early church, you see uh, people speaking very important um, about um, Peter or about the Holy Father. Um, so let me just some examples. So the Council of Chalcedon, 451, um, Leo, the Pope, he writes to that council and says, this is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe, thus the Orthodox believe, anathema to him who does not thus believe. Peter has spoken thus through Leo. Like They're recognizing Peter speaking through the Holy Father, uh, Pope Leo at that time. Um, St. Ignatius of Antioch referred to the Roman church as the one that teaches other churches and presides in love over them. Um, and then maybe just, uh, or two more, um, Pope Victor I, he excommunicated an entire region of churches for refusing to celebrate Easter at the proper date. While St. Irenaeus, he thought that wasn't like the right timing, he thought it was imprudent, he still recognized his authority in uh, Pope St. Victor. He said, It is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church, Rome, on account of its preeminent authority. And then finally, just going back to that Council of Florence and what the, the East, the Orthodox, actually signed that document. This is part of what it said in that agreement. Um, Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff hold a worldwide primacy and that Roman pontiff is the successor of Blessed Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, true vicar of Christ, head of the whole church, and father and teacher of all the Christian people. And just to put a, a fine point on it, it's like, you want to have unity, you have to, you need to have one that brings everyone together. We saw Peter do that in his life, and then uh, the Holy Father, uh, the, the, the successor of Peter all these years, being that unifying factor of knowing where uh, the Church of Christ is. You can say, hey, um, I go to this parish and this, um, this priest, the pastor, he's in communion with the local bishop who's in communion with the Bishop of Rome who is a successor of St. Peter. And so a very visible structure way to know that if you belong to the church that Christ founded. Father, if you, you can finish up here. Sure. Um, thank you for bringing up uh, upon this rock. Yeah. Open my church. That's one of my favorite passages. Um, we have it in our Bible too. <laughs> um, the Bible was written in Greek, obviously. Um, what's fascinating about that passage is you have to read the whole thing. So it begins with Jesus asking his disciples, "Who do people say that I am?" Right, and they give different answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. And then he goes. Who do you say that I am? And so it's, it's Peter who says, you are Christ, the Son of God, right? And so then Jesus responds, yes, that is correct, and upon this church, I'll, or upon, upon this rock, I'll build my church. So Peter, Petros in Greek means like boulder or rocky. So if you were to translate his name, Peter means rocky. 
So upon this rock, right? So you can see the, the play on words that's happening in the original Greek. Um, but for us as Orthodox Christians, here's where the difference happens. Um, the Catholics tend to say that that statement is made upon the person of Peter. As Orthodox Christians, and most of the church fathers would say, it's not about the person of Peter, it's about his confession. The rock on, on, upon which the church is built is not Peter himself, but on the confession that he makes. And here's why we say that that's the more, to us, this is why this is the logical answer. is because Jesus does, then goes on in the rest of the passage and explains what Peter's confession means. And so he goes on to explain, yes, to be the son of God means that I have to go to Jerusalem, that I have to be crucified, I'm going to die, but on the third day I'm going to rise again. And what does Peter do at that point? He says, no, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. Right? Because Peter didn't want to see Jesus die and be crucified. Crucifixion was a very painful way to go. And the, the Romans had a habit of lining the roads with thousands of people at a time um, with crucifixions. It was like a don't mess with Texas sign, except this was don't mess with Rome. And, and what does, when Peter says, no, Lord, let this not happen, what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So now it's not such a good time to be Peter, is it? Maybe the rock isn't founded on the person of Peter because he just called, got called Satan. Um, and so it's after that, if you keep following the story, that Jesus then shows that it's through the crucifixion that his glory will be manifested because what comes next is the transfiguration. Um, and then, of course, Peter's there to witness that. Um, at the end of John, when, when Jesus says, feed my sheep three times, that's in response to him giving Peter a second chance, because what had Peter done at the crucifixion? He had denied Christ three times. And so this was, and in the Greek, if you read it in the original Greek, it's very interesting. It's not as good as it actually sounds in English, because it's always mistranslated. My parishioners know I'm doing this all the time. I say, this is what your English Bible says. Here's what the original really says. What it actually says is, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? Peter responds, Lord, you know that I philos you. I like you. A second time, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? Peter responds a second time, Lord, you know that I feel you. I like you. And then it's the third time Jesus finally comes down to Peter's level and says, Peter, do you feel me? And that's when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I feel you. And so there's a play on words that usually it's just translated as love, love, love in English, but that's not what's happening. So even there, Peter hasn't quite gotten up to the bar. Jesus has, like, just like he does for us, he has to condescend and meet us at our level. Um, and then, as I said, um, that the early church, um, the East was not as concerned with apostolic succession in the same sense that the West became, because Constantinople was founded by St. Andrew. Um, Alexandria was founded by St. Mark. Um, Jerusalem was founded by St. James. So we had apostolic succession from all the different apostles, not just Peter. Um, there was also an idea that every bishop was in the throne or the line of Peter, not just Rome. And you will see within the church fathers, they will talk about other bishops, not in Rome, but around other bishoprics being in the seat of Peter and speaking as Peter. And what they mean by that is, this is just a bishop, he's an apostolic bishop. He has the authority, just like the original apostles, with Peter kind of being a, a first. And as I said, um, Peter was the bishop of Antioch, and even to this day, because Peter obviously was a married bishop, um, to this day there are descendants of Peter in Antioch who are Orthodox Christians, um, which is very, very cool, I think. But anyway, that's the, that would be the Eastern perspective on that particular passage.
Well, thank you. We have a lot of questions, and I'd like to get to them. And again, if you have a question for us, please uh, write it down, and we'll look them up. What we have is we see a very great number. And the first one I want to bring to your attention is really what you've been talking about. But uh, what, in your opinion, is the largest obstacle to unity now? Bishops. <laughs> I mean, in reality, it's about my, maybe I don't know about you, Father Nick, but it's about my pay grade. <laughs> um, I would say probably, like I said earlier, there there are Catholic Orthodox dialogues. Um, I don't think the Filioque. I think, as I said, here's part of the problem with the Filioque. When it was translated into Latin, the word that means proceeds in Latin can mean proceed and sent. But if you come back to the Greek, it could only mean proceeds. So part of the problem is a translation issue. Um, and as I said, I think if you understand, and I think Catholics have said this is kind of how they understand it today, is that in the creed, proceeds and sent can be the same thing, it's the same word, but meaning two different things. One's referring to the nature of God, one's referring to the economy of God, how he works in the world. So I don't think the filioque is insurmountable anymore. What I think is the bigger problem is the authority of the Pope. I think that's the big hang-up at this point. I don't know, Father Nick, if you would... Yes, and yeah, I, th I think from our viewpoint, it's recognizing uh, the Pope's position. And just on a commonsensical level, I, I, th I think you need to have one head for unity. In um, the book of Isaiah, you have Shebna. Um, we just heard that reading a couple weeks ago in the Catholic churches about... He's this prime minister figure, and he's not doing well, so he's going to lose his spot, and someone else is going to be put in his spot. And it talks about the key being put on his shoulder. Like He's going to have the authority of the king. He's going to have that authority. And when the king's gone, he has that authority. Peter, the pope, is the one who has God's authority when he's gone. And you need that central authority to guarantee the unity. Um, so that's... But, uh, yeah, I agree that that's the, uh, <laughs> the obstacle um, between us. I should say for those who don't know, the Orthodox Church is actually Orthodox churches. So it's a bunch of, a bunch of what we call is like, I don't know what we're up to, 14, 15, 16, out of, they, we kept, we've added more. Autocephalous churches. Autocephalous means independent or self-ruling. So here in, du in, in Duluth, the 12 Holy Apostles, we are actually the Church of Constantinople. There's also the Church of Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Moscow, Ukraine, Romania, Greece, um, Serbia, so on and so forth. And we do not have a central authority at the top. And as I said, each church is independent administratively, but we are all in communion with each other, and that's what makes up the Orthodox Church. What I think is really fascinating, and this has fascinated me for no end since I converted orthodoxy, is you will see within some churches, even with a strong central authority, that on the ground, worship practices are all over the board. Um, what people believe are all over the board. Orthodox, because we have no central authority, we have maintained the unity of faith and practice. You can go into any orthodox church around the world, and it's going to be the exact same service. Um, the language might be different, or the musical settings might be different, but it's the exact same service with the same words. Um, and you will have, you will also have a unity of faith across the board. You will not have one bishop saying this and another bishop saying that. And so for me, and this has fascinated me, 
without a central authority, for us to still remain, have such unity, it must be the work of the Holy Spirit. I, that's always fascinated me, um, for those who don't understand the way Orthodox, the structure works. Next question is on sacraments. Um, do both churches have seven sacraments that are recognized by each other? Yes and no. <laughs> um, so the Orthodox Church, technically we don't have sacraments. We have mysteria, mysteries, which are technically different than sacraments. Um, you will occasionally see Orthodox evangelism materials, so to speak, that will say we have seven sacraments. But we do not limit the sacraments in the way that the West has. Um, and, you know, I was, I was talking with someone, you know, monasticism, marriage, funeral, baptism, chrismation, ordination, and we got much more than seven. Um, so for us, it's the mystery drawing deeper and deeper and deeper into the mystery of God and who he is. Um, so, we don't, so one, technically, sacraments and mysteria are separate. Uh, sacrament, Father Nick can talk more about what a sacrament is from a, from a Western perspective or a Catholic perspective. But for us... What, what essentially happened was Russia decided that they liked the idea of seminaries because seminary is kind of a new thing for us as Orthodox um, because one of the, the bishops in Russia had spent time in Italy and he saw seminaries. And he said, well, this seems like a good thing to educate our clergy. And so he started seminaries in Russia. Well, and at that time they were speaking basically what we call modern Russian, doing services in old church Slavonic, which is kind of a made-up language, but I can talk about that another time. But they needed textbooks, and so they imported textbooks from the Latin West. So they were going to seminary Latin, doing services in Slavonic, and speaking Russian. But that, but that period of time where they used Western textbooks, those Latin textbooks, brought in some Western ideas, especially into the Russian church, that kind of lingered. But um, so, yes, baptism, ordination, you know, what you would call sacraments, we have, but we don't limit them to seven. Do you define them as we do? We, you know, it's an outward sign of a inward grace instituted by Christ. Not necessarily. Okay. No. Um, what we do see, though, it's important for Catholics to realize different than Protestants is that they, we believe that they have valid orders and valid succession and so valid sacraments such as confession and um, the Eucharist. So, um, I think right now you're, we're supposed to, because we're not in communion, to receive sacraments at each other. But you could, it would still, you'd receive Holy Communion if you went to um, Father's um, church. It's, it's Jesus there, just as it's Jesus at ours. Yeah. I will say, it is interesting. So there have been cases, I don't know how you guys receive me if I became Catholic, there are situations where Catholic priests have decided to become Orthodox. In fact, there was a priest, I won't mention his name because some of you may know him, but there was a priest here in Duluth who became Orthodox. Um, and there are cases sometimes where Catholic priests, when they're received in Orthodoxy, they're received as a priest. So in that case, we'd be recognizing um, a sacrament. Um, when, if, if a Catholic were to become Orthodox Christian, I would not be baptized. We would recognize that sacrament. Um, it's just because of the schism, we're not allowed to as priests, we're not allowed to concelebrate services, but there are there are where we situations where or sacraments that we would recognize as valid. Correct. Yeah, yep. yeah, that would be the same. 
Yeah. Another group of questions on saints. Since the Chisholm, there have been many great saints. Um, does the East recognize these saints of the Western Church? And by, I'll add to that, to what extent does the West recognize any of the Eastern saints? Um, so the way we recognize saints is not as formal as the Catholic Church. There is no formal process by which we recognize saints. Usually what happens is a local, when someone holy dies, and by the way, technically, all called to become saints. We're not talking about some special category. But usually what happens when there's someone special, the local church will recognize that this was a holy person and start asking for their prayers. And maybe they start asking iconographers to write their icon. Um, as the popularity grows, eventually what happens is a local church will add them to the calendar. So like, for example, Constantinople has done this a few times with um, some monastic saints from Greece. St. Paisios, St. Sophroni, these sorts of things are modern saints. So Constantinople adds them to the calendar. And then what happens is the other churches, Jerusalem, Antioch, Romania says, oh, Constantinople added them, we'll add them to the calendar too. And so it's kind of a, kind of a mutual recognition. So as far as like the, the Western saints, you know, St. Saint Francis, St. Saint Mother Teresa, you know, in a technical sense, they're not saints, but I see no reason why as Orthodox we can't recognize their holiness and the special place that they held or the way they made Christ manifest in their time and place. Um, do, you, do you see, is that, do you view those saints in the East as, as an infallible pronouncement of them? We t- outside of ecumenical councils, we don't have okay. controllable things. Yeah, because <laughs> in, the, in the Catholic Church, we have a process, and we, we need, in a sense, proof from heaven, we, you know, miracles, two of them, mm-hmm. one for to become beatified and one to become canonized, and that's evidence that God is confirming, yes, so-and-so is in heaven um, as, as a saint. So, difference there. What does it mean to be in communion, which I believe you're talking about the, between the East and West, and still respect our separate traditions? Can you speak to that specific connection between the two churches? I, I, I may go first. Um, I, I think it means similar to uh, we have Eastern Catholic. We have 23, 24 different rites, and a lot of that difference is, is liturgically so different languages, different churches, groups of people believing and and under the Pope's authority, yet they offer the Mass, their liturgy, in a little different ways. And so I, I think you have kind of a already a model of what that looks like of diversity unified um, under the, the Holy Father in the Catholic Church. So I, I think you, you can see what would happen if the Orthodox... <clears throat> if there was communion between us. Yeah, for us to be in communion means essentially two things. So uh, the patriarch or the head of an autocephalous church or a self-ruling church, part of what he does when he celebrates the divine liturgy, which would be our version of the Mass, when he celebrates the divine liturgy, there's a portion of what we call the diptychs. And so in the service, the head of each autocephalous church will list 
all the other heads of the autocephalous structures are all the other patriarchs with whom we're in communion. And so if, for example, we were to go back into communion with Rome, and by the way, if we were to go into communion with Rome, the Pope would still be like the first among equals. Like, we have no problem with that. Um, that if we go back into communion, what would happen is at Constantinople, when the patriarch celebrated liturgy, he would mention the Pope by name, along with the other bishops, you know, the patriarch of Moscow, the patriarch of Antioch, the patriarch of Alexandria, so on and so forth. Um, so that's the first aspect. The other aspect is that we would allow communion in each other's churches. So I could go to a Catholic Mass, receive communion, and Catholics could come to my divine liturgy and receive communion. Um, at this point, obviously, that's not the case. Um, so if we go back into communion, what I think that would look like is kind of like what Father Nick is talking about. We would continue to maintain our own individual traditions and those sorts of things. It's just that we could there would be more flow back and forth, at least among the laity. Um, that sort of thing, if that were to happen. Um, that's how I would in envision it. Yeah. But um, So you'll notice if those are Catholics here, when we pray the Eucharistic prayer, we say with Francis, our Pope, and then our Bishop Daniel. Like That's our line of communion. If someone is in the Twin Cities, they say Francis, our Pope, and Bernard, our Bishop. So that's how they're in communion. Uh, Father's saying, you know, each, you would name each patriarch in the Orthodox. That's how you're in communion with the each of them that way. Yep. Yeah. You mentioned in your comments earlier about the two Romes or the Roman Empire in the East and the Roman Empire in the West. A lot of questions have come in. If you could explain a little bit more on that. And, and one question was, what role did the separation of the Roman Empire, East and West, play in the separation of the churches? You touched on that, but there's a lot of questions that came in as you were talking on that. If you could expand. So essentially what happens is the Rome starts as a kingdom and moves into a republic, right? And then eventually by it's Julius Caesar who's kind of influential and kind of transitioning from, from the republic to the empire. And eventually Octavian who is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, becomes the first Roman emperor. Um, Octavian, you probably know him better as Augustus Caesar. Augustus means one who is to be worshipped. Um, and so and then he, of course, declares Julius Caesar a god. And eventually what happens is the empire, the empire under Augustus and his successors, um, you know, the Trajan and Hadrian and, and Claudius, all these really famous emperors um, in Caligula, some infamous uh, emperors too. The empire eventually spreads and encompasses, you know, from essentially um, what is today Britain down to North Africa, over to kind of the edge of what we call like Syria and the Middle East, down into Egypt. Um, by the third century, and of course, over the time, the capital actually moves. It goes from, you know, it's Rome for a while, it's in Ravenna for a while, um, it's even further east for a while, and an emperor by the name of Diocletian eventually split, splits the empire into four sections. So there are two main emperors in each half with like a, a sub-emperor underneath them. And this is where Constantine comes in. Once Diocletian dies, well now, now you've got three, essentially three guys competing for the top spot. And Constantine is the one who comes up on top. And so he becomes the Roman emperor. And what he does is he moves the, he moves the capital from Rome to a little fishing village in modern-day 
Turkey, what we now know as Istanbul, at that time named Byzantium. This is where we get the term Byzantine, because the name of the town was Byzantium. And he renames it um, New Rome, is what he calls it. And the entire Senate gets up, leaves, and moves to New Rome. And eventually they call it Constantinople, meaning the city of Constantine in Greek. Um, the word Istanbul comes from Istin Polin, which is Greek meaning the city. You know, just like we talked about, we're going to go to the cities, the between cities, right? Um, they did the same thing in the ancient world. Remember, Istin Polin gets corrupted into Istanbul, is what happens. But when Constantine moves the empire um, east, you have what you have is you have the Gauls and Visigoths and um, Ostrogoths and all of that attacking the Western Empire. You have the Persians attacking the Eastern Empire. And eventually, because there is no political power in the West anymore, the West eventually falls. It actually falls several times um, through the centuries, and then it gets revived, and it falls, and it revives, and it falls. Um, and eventually, and by, the, by the 6th century, it's gone. Um, and so eventually, the Pope fills that vacuum, and then eventually, the, the Frankish emperors come up. You know, Charlemagne and the, the Holy Roman Empire, that's a revival in the West. But the actual continuation of the Roman Empire um, continues in the East, in New Rome or Constantinople until the, four, the 15th century, and it eventually falls in 1453. Um, and there's a whole succession of emperors um, in the East um, that continue on. Um, you know, Constantine, Theodosius, um, I'm trying to think of some of the more famous ones that you guys may know, John Paolobus, um, you know, these sorts of, of gentlemen. Does that answer your father? Yeah, no, that was really well explained. Thanks, Father. Oh, Justinian, that's a famous one. Orthodox and Catholic, is the sign of the cross slightly different? What is the history of this difference? Yeah, I, all I can say is we, you know, in the name of the Father, forehead first, then the chest, and then it's a cross, and this way, and opposite for you. So my understanding, so for us, when we make the sign of the cross, um, we, we do this with our hands, so the, the pointer finger, the middle finger, and the, and the thumb come together, and then the ring finger and the pinky go down. And so these two fingers, the ones that are down, represent the two natures of Christ, divine and human. And the three that come together represent the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the way we do it is Father, Son, and then it's right, left. So we go the opposite. Um, now I will say, the way the hand was held, it used to be like this. Um, so these three fingers represented the Trinity, and these two fingers represented the divine nature of Christ. The divine one, and then the human one bowing to the divine one. And so if you look at icons and you see Christ or the saints going like this, that's what they're doing. And so this used to be the old way of doing it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, my understanding is that all, all Christians, well, originally the sign of the cross probably started with just making a, a small cross like on your forehead, and then eventually it became bigger to encompass the entire body. And my understanding, it, it is between the tension between the East and the West that the West eventually changed it to go to the right, left, instead of left, right. Um, was my is my understanding that the historic historically it was more like this because when you bless when a priest blesses it's top bottom and then for me it's going right left because the blessing is going that way so so if you mirror me you're going to go left right if you follow what I'm saying so that the blessing is always going the same direction that's how I think about it.
Yeah, I don't know enough to, to dispute that. <laughs> <laughs> With that said, we've come up on our time for you to make some final closing remarks about the evening and about your conversation. And uh, so if you could do that for the next uh, 10 minutes between the two of you. And the question, we have a lot of questions. And I just want to mention that uh, we couldn't obviously get to many of them tonight. And there's surveys on your table. And all of you who registered electronically, there's going to be an electronic survey with some suggested topics for the future. So please look for that. Please fill that out. And these questions will be retained and reviewed so we get a sense of your interest in future topics. But with that, if you could summarize. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Father. This has been good, and uh, it's amazing how fast the time goes. And uh, I look forward to uh, next time that we can pick out some of those topics that are on their table that may be more um, specific. Uh, this was good, I think, to get the history, and you explaining it even in that last question was, was really kind of um, good for me. Uh, as, as far as, you know, yeah, choosing to be... A Catholic, or I mean, I didn't choose, I was baptized in my family, but remaining Catholic, uh, just see, you know, it, it coming down ultimately with uh, the Holy Father and that Pete, him being the successor of St. Peter and uh, what Christ did with, with Peter and founding his church on him and Peter being that unity figure of, of all that would believe and follow Jesus. And um, we, as to... Uh, um, just priests, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not on that higher level, and so we just pray for our, our communion, and uh, it's good that can come to a better understanding of um, what uh, you and your people believe, and uh, pray that, yeah, that uh, the Lord's will be done. Yeah, thank you, Father Nick. Uh, thank you to the theology uncapped um, staff, and all of you to coming out to, to listen to us. I hope you still like the. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, even though we're not one, you know, as Father Nick, I mean, obviously on a debate or a discussion like tonight, we emphasize the differences because that's what people want to hear about. It's more interesting, makes for a better conversation. But there is a lot that the East and the West share. There is a common, common thousand-year history together and then a common thousand-year uh, history of separation but I think um, the churches, you know, there, there's all the branches constantly going out to the other one, especially starting in the 20th century. Um, every year, I know the Patriarch of Constantinople sends a delegation to the Feast of St. Peter and Paul in Rome. Um, and do you guys celebrate late June like we do? 29th. Yep, June. 29th. Because okay. um, 12 Holy Apostles is the next day, so our yeah. feast day is on the 30th. Um, so a delegation always goes there. I know the Pope always sends a delegation on the Feast of St. Andrew to Constantinople, because that's, that's their feast day, because St. Andrew founded that, the Church of Constantinople. And so there's that, that constant dialogue. Um, you know, someone asked, and I just thought of this, you know, what's the biggest hindrance? Even if the, the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Patriarch of Rome or the, the, the Pope were to go back into communion, you have to remember, since we don't have a central authority, the Pope would have to go back into communion with each Orthodox Church. So they would have to make, you know, they have to talk to Moscow, they have to talk to Romania, they have to talk to Bulgaria, they have to talk to Alexandria, Jerusalem. So it's, it's a much more complex sort of thing. And us as Orthodox sometimes 
Israel, Russia, and Ukraine don't get along right now. You know, that, that's a big thing. Um, and that's a whole other mess. That's another conversation. But um, I think, you know, through the, you know, ultimately when Christ comes back, if we don't figure it out, you know, Christ will. Because I think Christ's love, um, Christ's love encompasses and can overcome whatever differences we may have. And I think it, um, the most important thing is that we have that solid foundation in Christ and we keep moving forward in our relationship and becoming more and more Christ-like. And I think if we're able to do that, um, then we will, even if our churches don't naturally come into communion, if we become more like Christ, we will grow closer together, at least in our personal, um, our personal uh, walks. So anyway, uh, thank you all for coming.